Welcome to Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. Stories We Don't Tell is a monthly event in Toronto that features candid stories of strength and resilience. I threw out my prayers, they went flying like balloons. The air whipped our hair, we went shooting down the valley. Knuckles gripped upon the handles, shivers rushing down my spine. What's a blind? Always comes at the most frightening. I knew I was in over my head. I just didn't know how deep. My legs were beginning to rebel as the trail turned and opened out into a long valley. In the distance, the only sign of competition, a bright yellow blob, slipped back into the woods. See, the thing about running 10K is that if you're slow, you've got a lot of time to figure out how you got there. And for me, it can be blamed on a quiet redhead I met in sixth grade. I started at disadvantage. Puberty came late, and so I was small and a weird combination of talkative and timid. And so when the race began, I was under no delusions. I was not going to win. I stood in the middle of 200 or so other runners and my Birchmount Park penny failed to withstand the November chill. And with the sound of the gun we took off into the backwoods of whatever Ontario town the cross-country championships were happening that year. Kay was my first crush. We became fast friends while still living in our gendered bubbles. At one point, it seemed like the two of us just might get selected to math camp to go together over March break, and I was ecstatic. <laughs> but it was not to be. She, was, she became sick, and so another student was chosen in her place. However, our awkward romance continued to such heights as being forced to dance together at the end of our grade 8 trip. And I don't know if any of you know this, but when you slow dance, uh, both people aren't supposed to put their hands on each other's shoulders. (laughs) I was here as my team's fifth runner. And the way cross-country works is that uh, the top four runners are actually select, are chosen, decides how actually if you win, the team wins the, the, the medal. So the fifth runner is basically backup. Uh, and I was never my team's top four runners. So much so that my walls were adorned with medals I in no way earned. We would be in worse races in which things would happen like our team would finish first, second, fifth, eighth, and 72nd. <laughs> And I often find myself having these conversations in the middle of the pack with other runners who were so excited for beating someone from Birchmount. <laughs> and I would accept that, you know, I gave them that victory while I also knew that I would end up going to the championships. <laughs> we enter high school. Kay was in the exceptional athlete program and advanced classes. I was in neither. Although I blamed the latter on the fact that I wrote my application essay in the back of a van, which made my already terrible handwriting nearly illegible. She joined cross country. I followed suit. But again, the main difference was she was the best runner of her year, and I was most decidedly not. To keep pace with the main pack, I was forced to run at a speed I knew I couldn't sustain. 
By the second kilometer, I was beginning to fall back. By the fourth, I'd settled into a pace well behind the main group. And by the fifth, I passed a man chatting with his coach as he limped along. He'd be injured earlier, and, but was still determined to finish the race. <laughs> At Christmas of grade 9, in a moment of brash, youthful optimism, I bought a bracelet to give Kay. It stretched over your hand when you put it on, and it was small wooden beads with an understated quality that I couldn't quite explain, but I was drawn to. I wasn't really sure what would happen when I gave it to her, but it sort of seemed like the desperate play I needed to make. <laughs> What I did know was why I bought it. Because this bracelet did not stutter. The bracelet could not say the wrong thing. It was perfect in all of the ways I was not. It said the things I couldn't. Well, it would have if I gave it to her. <laughs> but when the time came, I chickened out and didn't give her the bracelet and instead just hid it in my room. And as high school progressed, I gave the bracelet a new meaning. It was to be my first loves. Whoever that may be, I set the bracelet aside for them. And with that, I resigned myself to years of celibacy. <laughs> Crushes came and went, and, but, and Kay remained in the back of my mind, but I was always too terrified to act on anything, and so I hid from everything. And just as I was beginning to fade, the trail burst out into the large open field. The final few kilometers were designed so the supporters could cheer their, cheer their teams on, but I found it largely vacant. The race for first was already over. The few who remained clapped as we passed, though their support felt more like it in relation to our sustained survival uh, than it did our position in the race. You can do it. You're not very good, but you can do it. Sidebar. Actually, during this part of the race, I remember distinctly having this entire thought process in my head about how this was going to be a stand-up bit, uh, which, which the entire premise was that when you got w further back in the race, supporters clapped slower because they figured that's the only way you could understand what they were doing. I tried to tell this to my family a few days later, and it bombed, uh, thus ending my stand-up career. But as graduation approached, I was beginning to feel a little more comfortable in my own skin, and a little more accepted by my peers, a little more confident, and as this occurred, what was now an on-again, off-again interest in K resurfaced. Everyone was pairing off for prom, and this seemed like my final shot to express what we'd both known for years. Now, my promposal was nothing more than an awkward conversation beside her locker. But she said yes, and I was overjoyed. I rented a tux, I matched my bow tie to her dress, and we posed for hundreds of pictures. And in these pictures, one thing was patently obvious. My forehead looked like a radiator. Because see, the day before, I spent a day squinting in the sun, and so I had these parts of my forehead, uh, which were protected skin, and the rest was bright red. I have hundreds of Facebook photos to prove it. Please don't go back and look. Kay, always kind to a fault, didn't mention it. 
and with one kilometer left in this race, I realized something horrifying. The injured runner I'd passed a while ago was gaining. <laughs> Still limping, but gaining. So I sped up. My coach had a mantra that the goal of the final push of the race should always be to pass 10 people. So I began my sprint. And each person I passed would do the same. And there was a beauty in it. The sun shone down on us as we turned into the stadium for the final 200 meters. And there were four of us, neck and neck and neck, all striving for the line. There was no glory to be won, no chance at victory. Only the vague hope to finish strong. To finish in a way you could be proud of. And Kay and I didn't date after prom. This isn't that kind of story. She got a full scholarship to an American university uh, and had, for running and had to leave in mid-July to move into residence. And a week before, her, before, we left, before she left, we made plans to hang out. And I sheepishly entered her house, one that I'd never been inside, despite our countless walks home together. Although, full disclosure, I didn't write this thing, but we lived in opposite directions. I would walk that way and then walk all the way back. Um, but, nevertheless. Uh, and I, we settled into her room. And I explained I had something to give her. A bracelet. I explained its story, how I chickened out how I was saving it, but also how it was always hers in my mind. She smiled and thanked me. I don't actually know if Kay knows how much of my teen life that she shaped, but we haven't seen each other since. Okay, so you just heard a story about from, from me. Yes, we uh, just heard a story from Stefan. Yes, you did. Host editor. Yes. Okay, that you told uh, last summer, which is not that relevant, but nope. still true. That is true. All right, and so today we're going to talk about when you don't feel ready to tell a story. Yeah, or, or when a story doesn't fully gel. Uh, and, you know, we often, uh, especially the three of us, often find ourselves in the case of, you know, we don't have an option of not telling a story. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's not so much we, we we it's not so much we've to set a weird deadline for us and failed. It's that like okay, well we you know we need a fifth story and that's gonna be you. Yeah, figure that shit out. We need to run out the lineup. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so and so yeah. So I wrote down this, and what's interesting about this story is I didn't think it would come out that way. I really figured I could pull it off, and it just never. And I never felt super happy with it. Uh, so I apologize if you listened to the whole story and are now wondering why I'm trashing it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. So we play the story first. Exactly. So you wouldn't be you wouldn't be really biased against the story. Yeah. Uh, so if you really did like it, that's fantastic. Uh, and I think that also speaks to the difference between whether or not a story works for you and a story works for the audience. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know you never want to be apologizing for the story you're telling on stage. Which I think is actually the first piece of advice I'd provide. I would offer anyone. Uh, who does find themselves on stage telling a story they're not totally happy with, which is don't apologize for it. Yeah. Uh, just tell it with as much gusto as possible and hope it lands with people. Sure. And I think like something that makes me nervous talking about this at all is that um, a lot of the times a story not gelling is just a part of the process of writing a story. So 
you we kind of go through this when we when we get into a cycle where we're telling stories every month, which is about to start again because we're just coming off of hiatus. You you kind of go through it every time. Like occasionally you write something and it comes out right away and it's ready to go. But most of the time you write a couple drafts that like you're not happy with. And so a big piece that we have to tell people when they're coming in, if they're especially when they're not happy with their first draft, is like, don't worry. You won't be. Like that's just a part of the process. That's just a part of getting to the truth of the story, is that the first couple times you write it down, like they're gonna be awkward bits and they're gonna be bits that don't feel right, and that's okay. Because guess what? You're gonna write eight more drafts. Probably not. Maybe three. <laughs> maybe yeah. three drafts. But so having a story that doesn't gel is just part of the process. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't want people to be like scared about that. Right. Yeah. In general. Right. Because I, I don't I don't think you should ever really be scared if something doesn't work. And so the, the, I guess a, a big question uh, that can be asked about when you're working on a story of this nature is if you get to a point where it's still not working after the fourth or fifth draft, if it's if you have to sort of abandon the story altogether or if you put it on a shelf and find it later. Because uh, a part of me would be interested to revisit the story and find out if I could make it work mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I'd be happy with. Again, uh, you might hear the story think it was great and are now you know second guessing everything that you've ever written because like, well, if you didn't think that one was fine, what's everything else? Or uh, maybe you're gonna go and give a bracelet to your middle school crush that you've been keeping in a drawer. Exactly, which um, would be really nice. Tell us if you do that. Yes, if you do that, yeah, please let us know. Um, sure. I mean, that's that's a big part of it is that we all have our own kind of standards in our heads and calling them standards is even kind of misleading because usually they're inconsistent and they just have to do with like how you feel when you're reading it and it doesn't have to do with anything that you can identify about the writing or about the conclusion or about the action like it's not identifiable you're just like I don't feel the way that I feel when I'm happy with my work yeah well I think it also has to do with how well it it lands for you and so for me I have specific things that I really like having in my stories uh, for example, if I can feel like it cr- I've created a centric hole that sort of lands in the same place it started, then I actually, then more often than not, I'll feel like it was a successful story, even if, you know, parts of it weren't as narratively strong or any, th- any other natures I have. If I can get it to end in a way that I feel like, yes, this, this sort of completes a centric circle, I am... I'm probably going to be fine with it. And if I can't pull that off, I'll have I'll, I'll have a difficulty really accepting it, mm-hmm. which is not indication of a good or bad story. It's sort of my own personal bias laying into how I feel about telling one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. <laughs> when we all have things like that. Like, I mean, I kind of, yeah. It's like if I didn't cry while I was writing it, that I'm not confident that there's any feeling in it, which mm. is absurd. Right. Yeah, because I've cried maybe twice writing any of my stories. Because you don't cry, and that's a separate issue. I do cry. I want that. I want that. <laughs> on the record. On the record. Okay. So we all have our own standards and that they don't necessarily reflect how other people hear it. Right. So I think, I think a couple of the things that kind of go in with this is if you've committed to telling a story and you've wound up with a draft that you're not totally happy with, or you don't feel like it's gelled there. I mean, you can keep working on it, but ultimately like you get to the event and what can you do? Yeah. So you can, first of all, Trust that the audience is there in good faith. So you never know how they're gonna how they're gonna receive your story. And you can just trust that, especially at a storytelling event, like they're there because they're rooting for you. And so they're just gonna wanna hear it. Like even if they don't like it, you know, I don't know, they might leave and like dissect it as we do sometimes, the stories that we do and do not like. Um, but they're just there to hear your experience. Like you're not you're just talking about your own life. There's no wrong 
nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you, you will always be a harsh critic. Yeah. And so, you know, in, 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 so any story that you're not happy with, a good percentage of people will presume that you were happy with. You know, mm-hmm. No one is going to come out and be like, I could tell you weren't happy with that story. And get unless you apologize for it, which yeah. is why never Don't apologize for your work. Yeah. So another thing to keep in mind in that scenario is that you're there as part of a lineup. Mm. So we, as evidenced by the fact that we did an entire episode about this, like we <laughs> obsess about the story order. Um, and something that comes up a lot, especially with you, is that you hate being the first story, but sometimes end up being the first story. And your place in the lineup isn't a reflection of the quality of your work. It's just like the tone of your story. And I think that for me, sometimes when I end up in that slot, so I'm just going to project onto you for a second. Thank you. It's, it's like my story isn't that heavy and that's why I'm in the first place. But because the heavy stories are about something that's really like concrete that we can understand why they matter that being put in the first position when your story doesn't feel like it's gelling, it's easy to tell yourself like, Oh, my story isn't about anything and I'm not happy with it. And like, what am I even up to here? Uh, and the answer is that like, you need to trust the other people that you're in a lineup with because you're creating an evening together. You're not just like, it's not that you just told a story about how you got into running and then everyone came and listened to that and then left and like, maybe they're going to be let down because they wanted to cry. Someone did cry at this event, by the way, not oh, yeah. from your story, but yeah. that did happen. Someone oh, yeah. did need to leave because they were crying, um, which is great. So, well, like it's great because they felt emotion, not yeah. great because of the reason why they were crying. Right. Sure. Well, it's just, it's authentic. So, yes. so, and that's the thing is like, someone still was really moved by this evening. So you just need to trust that the entire evening has been put together in such a way that your story plays a role too. And that the people who are at the event know that you're, that your story is a part of that. Yeah. And I think we, uh, what's interesting about this as well is I think we actually look at storytelling in a somewhat different way than most other groups do. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is that if I tell a story at our event, I know I'm never going to tell it again at our event. Mm-hmm. And therefore to me, it sort of feels like, well, that story is now done. It's now gone. Goodbye story. Totally. Uh, whereas most other people, especially people who don't run an event like this will consistently sort of, you, that's a workshop, you know, yeah. and, and, and it's a workshopping of your story and you're like, okay, what did work? What didn't work? And you have another time and another time, another time. And that story may end up being, you know, your best story ever. Right. Uh, and you, but, it, and this is an opportunity to learn. Right. Uh, and I think specifically because of the way ours is structured, we, I don't feel like that so much. That's true. I uh, don't ever go back to them. Or exactly. no, I shouldn't say I don't ever, but... Um, I really feel like I should, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, back in the, like th- now that I think about it, I really should. But it is a distinction that should be made in that most people telling these sort of stories would have the opportunity to come back and look at something and be like, okay, well, it worked. What didn't that time? Mm-hmm. What, can I, what can I improve on? And I think there's a... So there's always a growth aspect. Uh, so like if you find yourself on stage and you aren't super happy with it, then ask yourself at the, when you finish it, what worked, what didn't, and, 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 and take that opportunity to actually improve the story for the next time out. If there's a next time out, and if there isn't, you just get a chance to improve a story that you were you know, working on for quite some time. Yeah, and for yourself. Yeah, and I think what goes along with that and the way that I think about it with our event, we find that it's not just us who go repeatedly. Like A lot of people will come in with one story and then they're really interested in the process and they come back. So we kind of wind up with people coming in a couple of times and the first time they come in with what they know is a story. And then the next time they come in with something a little bit looser and it's an idea that they're working on. And then, and then the same thing. And, um, I think that that's, that's a big part of it. What I like about this element where people aren't trying to craft one story that they can just tell at events forever is that 
you can just trust that there's next time. Like if I haven't practiced my story enough or I'm not as confident in it as I have been other months, like that's it. I can just let it go at the end of the night. And that's kind of freeing actually. Yeah. And I think there's, I think that's an element that is, uh, that is important, which is that, you know, we sort of, when you, um, the ability to sort of come out and be like, all right, we're going to do this. Um, it's going to go how it goes. Uh, and then, and then we'll, we'll sort of let it, let it lie really, uh, is an opportunity to sort of, well, it lets you be more, takes more risks really. Mm. Uh, you know, cause it's not, you know, you're not building up material. It's not a waste of your time. If you tell a story that you're not super happy with, yeah. uh, it's a chance to sort of experience that experience. And then, you know, maybe you tell a story about the time you told a story that wasn't very good. Uh, and that becomes the next month's story, which you're very One happy day. with. One day. That'll be great. We'll yeah. all tell meta stories. <laughs> that's all. At some point, I'm going to have to, I think. There's no other way to do this. Yeah. That's uh, the perfect plan. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, not you personally, Bran. Uh, the <laughs> audience. <laughs> thank you, Stefan. Yeah. And thank you, Paul. Thanks, uh, Paul. Yeah, Paul's here. He's just sitting off to the side. You can find us online at thereapers.org because we're in the life collecting business. You can like us at facebook.com slash stories we don't tell podcast. If you want to help us out, you can rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks to Rayana for the theme music to this podcast. You can find out more about her in the show notes or at rayana.ca. This episode of the Stories of the Tell podcast was brought to you by Historic Downtown Perth. Historic Downtown Perth is turning 200 this year. Stop by 